Turn with me in James chapter 5. I had originally thought that we would do verses 13 through, uh, through 18, and there was just too much to unpack. And so I've, I've backed off and decided that this morning we'll do James 5, 13 through 15. So having said that, just so you know, James, 13, James 5, 13 through 15 is where we are this morning. But in reality, you probably could read and maybe even should read if you spend more time in this passage of Scripture, verses 13 through 18, because I think it in many ways is all of one piece. But you follow along with me as I read James 5, 13 through 15. Is anyone among you suffering? He must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, in what can be a very challenging and difficult passage, you know that in order for us to be able to rejoice the way that we would like in the truth of your word, that it requires in some shape or form some basic understanding of what it is that we read. And so even though we may struggle and strain to discern what it is that this passage is teaching, particularly as it comes to this statement about elders praying over the sick. We ask that you would be kind and gracious to give us understanding, some basic, simple understanding even, that would enable our hearts to be able to rejoice as we see your work and your ways among your people. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that by it we find life, being sustained through the power of your Spirit because of Jesus Christ. And we ask that all these things will be done according to your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. So there are three scenarios or situations that James addresses in fairly short order. In terms of saying, if you find yourself in this condition or in this situation, here's how you are to respond. So, responding to suffering, to cheerfulness, or sickness. And we're going to take each of these in turn. The response to suffering and the response to cheerfulness will be able to to handle more or less in, I I don't know, um, I don't want to say a short amount of time. I don't want to box myself in, right? I want to say a, a moderate amount of time. And then when we get to verses 14 and 15, the the response for someone who is sick, we want to slow down a little bit because there are a lot of questions that come up in this passage that we will try to address or try to answer before we then try to turn the corner and say, now why is it that the Lord has given these instructions to his people? One of the things that we might want to say before we even begin, one of the things that, that has struck me, I think for the first time going through this series in James, other people have seen it. I never did, so I'm thankful for those who have, uh, who have studied and written before we ever come to studying and writing ourselves. 
But the point is made that much of what James talks about, much of his concern, can be summed up in something like his desire or the Lord's desire that his people have a single-minded devotion to him. And you see this show up in different ways all through the letter, and I think it's borne out even in this section in which, that we're in this morning. So, for example, um, early on in James, when, the, uh, uh, when we're told to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, right? the reminder is, is that as God works through our trial, He is making us whole and complete, not lacking in anything. Right? This simplistic wholeness that God gives to his people even through the means of testing and trial. In the next paragraph where you're to ask for wisdom in the midst of your trials, the, the uh, encouragement is to make sure that you ask with the intention of receiving because the one who asks, not in faith but in doubting, is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. If you have one mind set on the wisdom that the Lord gives and, one mind, and half of your mind set on the wisdom that the world gives, you're going to find no true wisdom. Later in chapter 3, when James is talking about the way that we use our tongues, as he gets to the end of the section on the tongue in verses 9 through 12, he says that from our mouths come both blessing and cursing. And he says, brothers, this ought not to be. We should not be doing a little bit of both, but only one, a single-minded or single speech in the way that we address one another. In chapter 4, he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. And in chapter 5, as we saw last week, the command is for simple, straightforward speech. And so all of this depicting the idea that one of the overarching goals of the Christian life is for God to grow and mature His people in such a way that they become more single-minded in their focus on God, that they become more singularly driven in the way that they live and interact with one another. And if we can piggyback on that idea before we even get to the details in verses 13 and following, I would say that one of the things that you have here in these verses, going along with this idea of single-minded devotion, is ultimately that what James is saying is, regardless of the situation you're in, the Christian is the kind of person who is so singly focused on the Lord that they go to the Lord for everything. It does not matter what the scenario or the circumstances are. Because they have set their minds on the things above. Because they have fixed their eyes on Christ. Whether in good times or in bad times whether in miserable times or middling times or moderate times, whether in sadness or in happiness, in every situation, God's people are to go to Him. So start with me in verse 13. Verse 13 covers two scenarios, which we'll look at, suffering and cheerfulness. And the response, depending on where you happen to find yourself, is to either pray or praise. So in verse 13, the, the command or the exhortation is for God's people to pray or praise. And then as we'll get to verses 14 and 15, the command is for God's people in certain unique situations 
to call for the elders to pray. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? He must pray. Is anyone among you suffering? If so, he must pray. What, what kind of suffering does James have in mind? Well, it could be that what James is talking about is, is suffering of any kind. And, and I think you, you probably would be safe to say that that's a, a relevant inter- or a reasonable interpretation, most certainly a relevant application, that any suffering that we encounter in this life, we ought to take it to the Lord. I suspect, though, that this is a little bit more specific in terms of what James is communicating here for this reason. When James says, is any of you suffering, in verse 13, he uses a word that he has already used a couple verses earlier in verse 10. So if you look up at verse 10, you read, As an example, brothers, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now in 5.10, the suffering of the prophets there doesn't seem to be like the suffering of physical illness per se, but more in line with the kind of suffering that comes in your service to Christ. That is to say that the suffering, I think, that we're, that's being highlighted in verse 13 is very similar to the suffering of the prophets in verse 10, which is the suffering that we encounter for Christ from the world. So, are any of you suffering because of your witness to your Savior, if you are, you're to pray. Are any of you suffering because of your faith by virtue of the fact that you have to make sacrifices or abstain from certain things that could, in the short term, make your life easier? But because you are following Christ, you've been called to self-denial. You've been called to crucify yourself every day, and you're suffering through another day of self-crucifixion. Is that your suffering? Right? You, that, I think, is the, is the tone and the nature. So if you find yourself suffering for the gospel, for Christ, James says that the response is, you're to pray. Is that your first response when you suffer for Christ? Or is your first response when you see the hostility that comes to you or to the church more broadly, is your first response to find the nearest keyboard so you can bang out some sort of angry rant? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever other platforms are out there. When you suffer for the cause of Christ, when your faith puts you in a difficult spot, is your first reaction to find someone that you can commiserate with? I want to be careful here. There is a, there is a proper place for Christians to be sharing their cares and concerns with one another so that we can bear one another's burdens, right? So that we can step in and support and strengthen one another. But there's something that's not quite right, or at least we would say that is out of step or out of order, 
if the very first reaction or response we have to suffering for our faith is that the very first thing that we want to do is go run and find someone else to talk to about it rather than taking it to the Lord. Okay, fine, you've convinced me. Before I talk to anyone else, before I do anything else, when I encounter suffering in this life for the cause of Christ, in the way of discipleship, living in this hostile, rebellious world, I ought to go and pray. What do I pray for? Good question. Let me give you three suggestions. This is not exhaustive by any means. Let me give you three general ways that you could pray. Number one, you can genuinely pray that God would rescue you from your suffering. That God would deliver you from your enemies, who are His, and from whatever designs that they may have for you. Psalm 50, 15, call on me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you, and you will honor me. One of the reasons why Christians are encouraged to call for God to rescue them is because that's one of the ways that God glorifies Himself, by rescuing His people. God, you can do this. You're able to do it. And if you rescue me from a situation or a plight that no one else can rescue me from, you're going to get a lot of glory and a lot of credit for this. Will you please save me? You can pray that way. Paul prayed and asked the Thessalonians to pray that as the word was spreading, God would save them, would deliver them from hostile people who do not have faith even though Paul knew that rescue did not mean he would be immune to suffering. You can pray for rescue. Second thing you could pray for, this is a little bit more difficult, you can pray for faithful endurance. Once again, if the suffering that's being mentioned here in verse 13 is similar to the suffering of the prophets, in verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Verse 11 says, we count those blessed who endured. It may be that as you pray for deliverance in your suffering for Christ, that the Lord begins to make it clear that there is no quick rescue coming for you, that rather He is going to keep you because of His sovereign will and His providential purposes is going to keep you in this time of suffering. And so the very best thing that you can pray, perhaps even while you still pray for rescue, is to say, okay, Lord, if you are going to have me wait for my rescue, keep me faithful while I'm waiting. Don't let me deny you. Don't let me compromise my confession. Give me a willingness to suffer for your namesake. Give me even, you could pray for this, the very attitude that you instructed your disciples to have in Matthew 5. When men say all manner of evil against you and persecute you on my behalf, rejoice and be glad in that day, for great is your reward. You could pray that God would help you see the reward more than you see your own suffering. 
Or similarly, closely related, you could pray as Christ himself prayed in the garden. Father, all things are possible with you. If it is possible, take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Let your will be done. That would be a God-honoring way to pray, for sure. But the point is that regardless of what the prayer, within certain parameters, whatever the prayer looks like or sounds like as you wrestle with the Lord through your circumstances, that you're doing your wrestling with the Lord. He's the only one that's going to be able to provide rescue. You might as well go and talk to him because you've got nowhere else to turn. The second scenario is far different and the one that we would most like to be in. Is anyone cheerful? Some of you here this morning are cheerful. You're happy. If only for the fact that we're approaching Christmas and you love the Christmas season. If any of you are cheerful, you're to sing. What might God's people be cheerful about? Well, let's, let's start with the fact, just in, in this immediate context, let's start with the fact that if you are the kind of person who has gone through a period of suffering for your faith, and God has delivered you, you certainly are cheerful and happy that God has delivered you from your time of suffering, are you not? You know what you ought to do if you have experienced God's gracious deliverance from your suffering? You ought to be singing and singing loud. So David writing on his experience where the Lord saved him from the Philistine king when he had to act like he was an insane person. He starts off the psalm reflecting on that experience saying... I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble, the lowly will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. That's a man who experienced God's rescue and who said the very best response to that experience is to sing. Or maybe your suffering has not been by way of persecution. Maybe your times of difficulty has been as another experience that David writes about in Psalm 40 where you've had a pit experience. We don't know what the pit was that David is talking about. But it was a time, Psalm 40, verse 1, of intense waiting on the Lord to take him out of the pit that he found himself in. And David said, after a time of intense waiting, the Lord finally brought me out. He delivered me out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. And then he goes on, he says, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and rejoice. Maybe you have reason to be happy 
for Christ and for your salvation. Maybe you have reason to be happy for Christ and your salvation. You have reason to be happy and cheerful for Christ and for His salvation. Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. To know who you were and where you were before the saving grace of Jesus Christ ought to make your heart sing. Maybe you are happy and cheerful because of your love of the truth. A love of the truth, by the way, that is a gift in and of itself. For you to find any joy or delight in God's Word is itself a sign that God has been good and kind to you. Some of you, by the way, if you're like some very close members of my family who shall go nameless, but they know who I'm talking about, some of you are the type of person who will listen to a sermon, who will hear a podcast, who will hear someone teach through a passage of Scripture, and almost five seconds after you have heard that and recognized it to be good and true and beautiful, you can't remember or repeat back what you just heard. Are you that kind of person? I know the message was good. Right? Let me encourage you to say that if even in your mind and heart you have in some shape or form even a reverberating reminder of the fact that you have been brought into the truth of God through the riches of His Word, even if you cannot remember verbatim what it is that you heard, you can still sing. And some of you will find that if you actually set yourself to singing more often, that those truths that delight your heart will be further dug in because music has a way of causing the truth of God to stick in our minds and hearts in ways that the mere spoken word does not. Can I encourage you, by the way, even if you're not by nature a music lover or a music person, to make it a goal, even if it's for your own personal edification, to work up some sort of catalog of music that you can use to praise the Lord? Listen, when, when the end of your days come, and when you're lying on your deathbed, I can promise you, not a single person in this room will be quoting a sermon that they heard in this sanctuary. But what some of you will be doing will be singing songs that you learned 10, 20, 30 years ago. And you'll sing your way into heaven. At the end of the day, whether you are at the end of the spectrum where you are suffering and desperate for rescue, 
or you are at the other end of the spectrum and you are happy and cheerful and rejoicing because of what God has done for you or because the truth that exists in Christ, here's the way to sort of tie all this together. This is the goodness of God, that there is absolutely no situation or circumstance that you will ever encounter where God is not calling you to himself. If you are miserable, your God says to you, come. If you are confused, your God is calling to you, come. If you are happy and elated and wanting to find a release for your joy and excitement, God is saying, come. Is your devotion to the Lord, to your Lord and Savior, to the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, driven by the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and mind in such a way that in the bright days and in the cloudy days, in the sadness and sorrow, in the rejoicing and the glee, in everything, in every way, do you run to the Lord to take it to Him? That being said, verses 14 and 15, there are apparently situations or at least a scenario in which James can envision someone perhaps not being able to go to the Lord or call on Him the way they would in other circumstances. So after talking about suffering and cheerfulness, he comes to the issue or the circumstance of sickness in verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him or her, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, there are a lot of questions that come with this. So let me, let me do this. If you will bear with me, let's do a little bit of the egghead work first, right? Here's what the passage seems to mean, just at an interpretive level, and then we'll try to work that into, and here's the significance for the Christian life, right? So, we'll take this in three ways. We want to consider what the sickness is that James has in mind, what is going on with the prayer of the elders, and then how we're to understand the promise that's given about the healing that comes from the prayer. So, first off, what does James mean when he says, is any among you sick? Generally, there are two, two broad categories or two ways to understand this. It could be the word that's used here is used in the New Testament both for physical sickness and for spiritual sickness. In fact, almost all of the time that the word shows up in the Gospels, it refers to physical sickness. Almost all of the times, or the vast majority of times that it shows up in Paul's writings, Paul uses it in reference to some sort of spiritual sickness. But I think here in this context, what James has in mind is not a spiritual sickness, but is literal physical sickness. James seems to draw very heavily on some of the teaching that we see from Christ in the gospel records. 
And there's a very interesting passage in Mark 6.13. You don't need to go there now. Where Jesus sends the disciples out to preach as his representatives. And towards the end of that little episode, in Mark 6.13, we read this. And they, referring to the disciples, were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. That sounds really similar to what James is talking about here. Sick people who are being anointed with oil, although this time not by the apostles but by the church elders, so that they are healed. So I think this is a physical sickness that James is talking about, but go with me a little bit further. This is not an average sickness. This is not, in other words, the intent here is not, if you wake up congested tomorrow morning, you're not to call your elder on the phone and say, Elder, would you come anoint me with oil and pray over me? I have a head cold. That's not what's going on here. couple reasons we might say that the illness or the sickness here should be understood to be very serious. Number one, because whoever it is that's sick is being told to call for the elders to come to them. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders. The elders come to the sick person. The sick person does not go to the elders. Number two, when the elders do come, it's the elders who are doing the praying, not the sick man or the sick woman. All of the activity, both with the praying and with the anointing of the oil, all of that is being done by the elders. And as a result of the prayer, James says that he will be that the Lord will save him, will rescue him, and will raise him up. Which sounds like this, whoever this sick person is, they may actually be bedridden because of whatever illness they have. So, to summarize then, I think the sickness or the illness that James has in mind is, is a serious, even a, life, a potentially life-threatening illness, or at the very least, we would say that something, that something along the lines of being debilitating. In those cases, James says, you may want to consider, or it may be a good step, to call for the elders to come and to pray over you. What are they going to pray? How are they going to pray? What are they going to do in this prayer? Well, notice that the elders do two things when they come. They pray in the name of the Lord, and they anoint this person with oil. Let me start with the back end there, okay? This is a verse where some other traditions develop a doctrine or a theology of uh, something of a sacrament in its own right, last rites. Before you die, you have the priest come to anoint you with oil so that you'll be ready to go into eternity. That's not what's going on here. Okay? It's not a guarantee of forgiveness or any, any such thing. Along those same lines, there is nothing in the oil itself that is special or miraculous or wields some sort of power. Notice it's not the oil that's placed on the individual, but the prayer that is offered for them that is said to bring about the healing. 
So the purpose in the anointing seems to be that the elders are placing some oil perhaps on the forehead or, or on the top of the head, how, however you might do it, that it is a physical act for symbolic reasons. That anointing in the Old Testament and New Testament was often, done, was often done as a way to single someone out or to draw attention to them. So when the elders come and when they pray over this individual, the reason that they're anointing this person with oil is not because there's any magic in the oil, but because they are, by doing this act, saying, Lord, would you take special notice of this person as we pray and cry out for them? But ultimately, it's the prayer that's being offered that brings about the healing. Look in verses 14 and 15. Towards the end of verse 14, the elders are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. It's the prayer that leads to the healing. It's the Lord who heals, not the elders who are doing the praying. Do you see that? It's the Lord who heals and raises up, but He does it through the prayer that's being offered. Which then leads us to what I think is probably the hardest part of this passage. What in the world are we to make of the promise that if the elders come to someone with a debilitating illness, someone with a life-threatening sickness, and if they pray over them and anoint them with oil, the statement is that the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. You should know, if you're a member here at Edgewood, this has been done here at Edgewood. Members of this church, years past, recent days, have called and asked for the elders to come and to do this very thing, to have a special prayer over a brother or sister, anointing them with oil. You also should know, and this is what makes this so difficult, that not in every situation, I don't even know what the, what the rate or what the odds would be, that not, not everyone who receives this prayer from the elders and this, and this anointing, not everyone is healed. That's what makes this hard. Because it sure sounds like if you do what you're being told to do here, here you will see that individual healed. Which leads some people to say, well, if there, is a healing, if there is no healing that takes place, it must be that something wrong was wrong with the faith. All right? Let me, be, let me be very clear on this point. I don't think that that's the case, but let me say this. If there were a problem with the faith, it is not a problem with the faith of the one who is sick. Don't put that burden on them. The prayer of faith is being offered by the church leaders. If there is a problem with faith, it's the faith of the elders who are exercising the prayer, not of the invalid laying in the bed. 
But even so, I don't know that we ought to conclude that this is a universal promise, or I'm sorry, it is a universal promise, but with exceptions. For example, we know that there are clear instances in the Scriptures themselves where God's people have asked for healing and it has not been granted. 2 Corinthians 12 usually tops the list. Paul says, I had a thorn in my flesh. Three separate times I prayed and begged for the Lord to take it away. And the Lord said no. Are we to assume that the reason that Paul's thorn was not removed was because Paul did not have the right kind of faith? Certainly not. Because he goes on to say that the reason that the Lord did not take whatever illness or ailment Paul had, the reason he did not take it away from him is because rather than healing Paul, he wants Paul to see that his grace is sufficient through his illness. Even Jesus, we're told in Hebrews 5, cried out with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And Hebrews 5 says he was heard because of his piety or devotion. Did that save Jesus from the cross? No. But there is every reason for the church to understand or to believe that because the Lord is able to heal, because the Lord does heal, that He may in fact heal if we ask Him to in this scenario and in this situation. And we will ask for that to happen and see if He moves. So having said all of that, here I think, when you begin to get away from the thick weeds and the details of what's going on in this passage, here's one of the th- here are a few things that we ought to say about the significance of verses 14 and 15. Number one, we ought to recognize and be comforted and encouraged by the fact that God not only cares about our souls, but He cares about our bodies too. If you are a person who may not have a truly debilitating illness or ailment, or you may not be in a life-threatening scenario right now, but you have some sort of chronic sickness or ailment nonetheless, you ought to know that when you cry out to the Lord asking for strength, asking for help, that the Lord really does hear you when you pray, and He cares about your suffering. That because you are a weak child going to a loving father... Your loving Father does not say, I'm sorry, I'm in the spiritual business. I'm not in the physical business. I care about your heart. I don't care about your body. We would not have instructions like this if God did not care about the physical condition of His people. Number two closely related, we need to say that going all the way back to verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Verse 14, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders to pray. 
At the very least, we ought to say that it is abundantly clear in this passage that God hears and responds to the prayers of His people. Not in a way in which we can manipulate God, not in a mechanistic way in which if we say the right words or we use the right formula, we're guaranteed of a certain outcome. Thankfully, God does not answer all of our prayers in the way that we ask Him to. Could you imagine what a train wreck of a world that would be? But as a loving and wise Father, He is always ready to hear and listen, and He is always ready to respond, even if the response may not be what we most desperately want in that particular moment. He hears nonetheless. And then the last thing that we might say, and this probably is easily glided over, notice that in verses 14 and 15, that one of the ways that God provides for the health and the well-being of His child is through the church. As a matter of fact, if you start in verse 13, the address is to the individual. Is any among you suffering? He or she is to pray. In verses 14 and 15, if you are sick, the elders pray for you. And then next week, when we come to verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. It's not just the elders that are to pray for you, but the church itself ought to be praying for one another. This is why being a member of a church means something. This is one reason why. It's because God in His grace has provided for His people by placing them in a body of believers so that they can care for one another. Have you thought or considered the fact, if you're here as a regular attender, but you're not a, a, a formal member of this church, have, I, I would encourage you, challenge you to consider that although it is good for you to be here on a regular, consistent basis, you really ought to, in order to enjoy the full benefits of the grace of God, you ought to seriously consider joining this church. Or if not this church, join a good, healthy church. Doesn't have to be this one. I don't know why it wouldn't be. <laughs> but it doesn't have to be this one. Because notice here, there is a built-in assumption that when these drastic, crazy, chaotic times come, you have people to go to already. You don't just call on some elders. You call for the elders of the church of which you are a part. 
Because God loves us, he puts us in a body to be cared for and to be protected and shepherded. And if you are not taking full advantage of that, not only are you risking your spiritual health and vitality, you are turning your nose up at God's good gift and grace to you in the form of His church body. It is a kindness that God gives us the local church, and we ought to take full advantage of that. But all of this, all of this comes to us through the greatest gift of all, which is the person of Jesus Christ. Everything that we have talked about here, as we now turn our attention to the table, all of it has been made possible because of the suffering death of Jesus Christ on our behalf and His resurrection to life for the life of His people.